This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. I'm Glenda Geek. I'm Tara Tibbetts from Fort Worth, Texas of Brazos Valley Hounds. And I'm Emily Asterson from Albuquerque, New Mexico and the Casa Ladrone Hounds based in Santa Fe. And you're listening to the special fox hunting episode of Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for October 18th, episode 2040. This episode is brought to you by Masters of Foxhounds Association and Coverside, the magazine of mounted fox hunting. Well, here we are. It is Thursday morning, and we have something brand new for you on Horses in the Morning. I'm so excited about this. It's probably one of our most requested things here on the network, and we finally get to do it. And that is thanks to our wonderful auditor and listener, Tara, and my friend, Emily, who I've been bugging to do this about 10 years now. So you guys are going to do a fox hunting episode every month. I'm so excited. This is Emily here speaking. Um, We're just excited to do this finally glenn i mean how long have we been talking about it a it long seems time like a long time every time i see you i'm like yeah. i'm gonna do this and emily would run away from me in the halls because i'd be chasing after her saying you gotta do this emily <laughs> <laughs> but it took tara to make it happen that's so right kudos to tara for that <laughs> thank you tara happy to assist i'm excited to talk about fox hunting i'm relatively new to the sport, so I still have the newbie excitement for everything. So I want to kind of talk in this first episode a little bit at the beginning here, and then I'm going to bail out because you two are hosting this show. But I want to talk about what people are going to hear. Now, if you're not a fox hunter, stay tuned because we're really gearing this show for non-fox hunters to learn about fox hunting, as well as for fox hunters to learn more about fox hunting. So it's a little bit, Tara, that was your idea from the beginning when you approached me. You said, I want it to be for everybody, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I, you know, I grew up in a ranching family in Montana. And when I was introduced to fox hunting in Texas, I was elated. And so I, it's a very approachable sport. I, you can come from any background of riding and have a wonderful time. And it's really, and I think Emily would probably agree that the, the biggest thing with fox hunting is the camaraderie. Oh, that is so true. I mean, my fox hunting friends are, you know, they are my dearest, nearest and dearest. In fact, this past Saturday, we threw a big 50th birthday party uh, for a close friend of mine and she whips into our hunt and, and we hunted in the morning and then we hung out all afternoon, just talking and laughing and enjoying each other's company. And I think there's something about the sport that, that attracts people who, who just really love to have a good time. So, you know, so I think the camaraderie is a huge part of it. And once you become a member of the hunt club, you're, you're kind of in, in for life. (laughs) So So, Emily, tell us a little bit about, of course, the sponsors of the show is the master of Foxhounds Association and Coverside. So tell us a little bit about both of them. So the Masters of Foxhounds Association is basically the governing body of the sport of fox hunting in the United States. And what that means is that if you have a pack of foxhounds and you're a master, which is the person who sort of organizes and manages the hunt, um, you can become a part of the Masters of Foxhounds Association. And that group keeps uh, track of hound breeding. Um, It keeps track of territory for different hunts. So, you know, make sure that no one's running over anybody else's territory. Um, and they have educational meetings. They have a amazing collection of art, which they're hoping to be able to show pretty soon when they move into their new building. Um, and it's basically the, the, the governing body. And um, I'm the editor of Coverside Magazine, which is actually the magazine that is published by the Masters of Foxhounds Association. It's the only magazine in North America that is devoted to fox hunting, the only one. So it's pretty fun. It's a great gig. It's the best gig I've ever had because I guess get to write and read all about fox hunting every 
quarter when I work on the magazine. So it's really, really fun. And I get to meet a lot of really great people and hunt with lots of great hunts. And um, it's just a, just a fantastic way to live, frankly. Okay, so, so whose hound are we hearing in the background? Uh, probably Duke. <laughs> that's my hound. That's Tuffy. I'm trying to close the door. No, well, okay. Well, tell us about your hound, though. I mean, it, we're doing a fox hunting show, and there's a hound. It's perfect. So I, I hunt with Brazos Valley Hounds in Texas, and when our hounds um, no longer choose to hunt or they're too old to hunt, they get retired with members. So I have currently two retirees. We call them house hounds, and <laughs> Catfish is my elderly hound, and the one you hear is Tuffy. <laughs> well, it's always and, fun to hear horses and hounds on the show. So that's always fun. And I I also have a, a hound that I walked, um, which means that basically he was a puppy. When he was a puppy, he came and lived with me. And his name is Duke. And um, he, I had Duke and his brother, Dexter. And I walked them from about 10 weeks to about seven or eight months. And then they went back into the kennel. Um, and Dookie decided that he just really wasn't into the hunting thing. So, um, you know, he just would want to sit under a tree like Ferdinand the bull and like, you know, look at the sky and he wasn't terribly motivated. So he came back home with me and he lives here now. So he's my house hound. Well, I know you guys are going to talk more about yourselves and, and what's happened there, but I wanted to get right away into one of the questions that came up with the auditors. We asked the auditors questions about fox hunting, and what I think the theme is always the same, and this has been true in all the years we've talked about fox hunting, is people want to try it, but they're intimidated, one, by the by the outfits, they're intimidated by cost, they are... they don't think they can jump that high. So if somebody wants to start out, and let's say they're not even a jumper, but they really want to, to be involved in the excitement, maybe you can explain the different options for people that are just starting out and hunting, showing up for the first time. Well, um, you know, I think most hunt clubs in the United States today are super welcoming, and they want to bring people into hunting, and they want to make it, um, fun and, and less scary. And so, you know, if you're interested in joining a hunt, don't be intimidated because first of all, you can get in touch with the hunt club and find somebody to kind of help you along. Um, one of our guests later in the show is going to talk about, you know, having a mentor and it's, it's a great way to get involved in the hunt is to find somebody who can help you, uh, and get, get you introduced to the hunt club, um, help you borrow clothing, you know, everything in the first, you know, in your first hunt experience, everything is going to be optional. Your people are going to be really forgiving and really welcoming, and they're going to help you out. Um, you know, jumping is really, I don't know, Tara in your territory, how many jumps you have, but in out here in New Mexico, you know, we're hunting on thousands and thousands of acres. And I think there's maybe three coops out there and every coop has a gate. So if you don't want to jump the coop, you can go through the gate and you can also ride in the second or third field, which are designed to be slower fields and more welcoming to people who are maybe new to hunting or maybe on a green horse or who haven't had that much experience. And, you know, the third field, some, some people call it the third field. Some people call it the fourth field. Sometimes it's called hilltoppers. But that could even be as slow as just a walk trot field where you're up on top of a hill looking down, watching the action um, or skirting the action so you can see it. But you're not actually in the huge galloping fray of the first field if you're not confident rider or you're on a new horse or it's your first time out. So, Tara, you should tell us a little bit about your experience with that. Well, I think a lot of it depends also on the geography of where you live. Um, the hunt territory where I am is very similar probably to yours, Emily, in that you never have to jump a jump in our territory. You can choose to jump some jumps if you'd like to, but generally speaking, I mean, we have a lot of members who absolutely don't jump and a lot of guests who absolutely don't jump. And so, you know, I'm in Texas, so we're in cattle country and we have plenty of guests and members who come out and don't even write English. Yeah. Same for us. I mean, we have, we have people who, you know, who come out in Western tack and don't jump and never have, and have no desire to. And, 
that's totally okay. So it's very, very accessible. And, you know, the funny thing about the clothes is, you know, people really get wrapped up about the clothes, but, um, you can almost always borrow, um, clothes if you need to. And in our hunt, we are very relaxed about that. We're like, just as long as you come out, if you want to get the clothes, we encourage it. It's fun. It's part of the whole tradition of it. And, you know, the clothes actually have a pretty practical purpose. Um, to, for me, there's nothing really, there's nothing warmer than a wool coat on a wet day. And, you know, it can get wet and it still keeps you warm. So there's a reason why we wear the clothes we do. It's not just for dressing up, but nonetheless, you know, we've got several people in our hunt who come out just as they are and whatever they happen to have. And eventually you can collect everything you need. I mean, I was, uh, I was telling Glenn and, and Tara earlier that I don't think I've bought anything off the rack. Um, I think almost everything I've gotten has been from either a secondhand store or through a Facebook group or, you know, just at our little opening hunts, we often have tax swaps where people bring like their breeches that don't fit them anymore, or somebody has a tweed coat that they bought that they don't like. And, and, you know, those are great ways to get outfitted. Yeah. And we have a lot of fundraisers where members will bring attire or, you know, something that doesn't fit anymore or whatever. And it's a fundraiser for the hounds as well as it uh, allows members the opportunity to buy clothes, especially for newbies. And I, one of the things I wanted to mention too is almost all hunts have a, a or have a program in place where you can come out as a guest uh, for a couple of times, right? Like Jennifer has done that with both hunts here in Florida. By the way, you can get away with uh, you know the same thing here in Florida, not doing any jumps, but you might have an alligator or two nipping at your heels in some of the swampy areas. Um, <laughs> so you, you got to be used to that. But that's true, right? Most hunts have a, a time or two where you can go out and pay a, just a cover charge, minimal cover charge, and go out and play. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Have, Cap yeah. and it's it's referred to in the hunting field. It's called a capping fee, uh, and yeah, different hunts have different rules. Uh, we're not very strict about about placing a limit on the number of times someone can cap. Yeah, most hunts will. You know, most hunts have various levels of membership, and you can cap, or you can be a social member with eight caps, or you can be a half member, or you can be a full member. So, I mean, their, their hunts are pretty willing to work with whoever um, wants to come out to figure out how to make it accessible for them, you know, both financially. And you could even, you know, it's not even, it's not a bad idea sometimes to talk to hunts about whether you can, um, you can lease a horse for a hunt who is well-trained for hunting. And, you know, I'm, I, because of my job, I, I hunt around a lot. You know, I hunted at probably 15, 20 different hunts and I have ridden some fantastic horses that are totally well-trained and know their job and know where to be and really, really push button, easy horses. And, um, and that's a great way to get to know hunting is to ride a horse that's super well-trained and knows its job. So and you can rent them at some hunts when you go? At some hunts you can. Yeah. At yeah. some hunts, it just depends. And a lot of times, like in our hunt, we're pretty small. We have a couple of horses that, that are available, um, for lease. And what, one of them is this great old off the track thoroughbred named Spanky who you can just ride that horse. You just put him, put him in the group and he knows exactly what to do. He is just the easiest field hunter ever. Um, he's not pretty, but he is awesome. So, you know, a lot of hunts have, have that. And, and that you can also, a lot of hunts have actually a livery stable that does nothing but lease horses to people and they make sure they're trained well and, and they'll bring, you know, the tack you need and everything. And they just come and. Well, and you know what? The ride. inside of the emergency room isn't pretty either. So I'd rather ride a horse that's not pretty. Um, yeah. <laughs> Taro, how well, about you? Do, do they rent horses down there at yours? Uh, if somebody wants to. Yes, there's okay. there's absolutely ways to borrow horses okay. here. And and one thing I will say, my best friend and I went to the World Equestrian Games and we connected with a couple of the hunts around there. And we went and, and we'll probably talk about this in a later episode and go into more detail, but we road whipped. So we rode in vehicles with people who were members of the hunts that we went with and watched the hounds and helped the hunt from the road. And that was how we got introduced to a couple of the hunts around North and South Carolina. 
I did that too as the husband and when Jennifer, my wife, worked at Myopia Hunt Club, or which I think is, has to be one of the oldest in the country, right? Up oh, in yeah. uh, North Boston. She worked there for many years as the uh, manager of the barn, and she went out on all the hunts, and I used to go along and do that. that you know, we could, we could see the hunt from many places in the car, and we'd help them cross streets and things like that. It was a lot of fun. Actually, it's a lot of fun to watch. And you really learn a lot just watching. And now with the GPS, the way you can track hounds, you can really learn about the how they move and where they go and all that. Samantha wants to know about the different kinds of hunts. And what she means is drag hunts, live hunts. What do you hunt for? Uh, so let's talk about live as, a, as opposed to drag. Do you want to take that one, Emily? Sure. Uh, so two different kinds of hunts. A live hunt is actually the hounds scenting on an actual animal. And the animal, called the quarry, can be a variety of different things depending on the part of the country that you're in. Um, it used to be that most people, most hunts, hunt foxes, as per the name, fox hunting. But that has changed um, because the coyote has really invaded a lot of territory. So now some of the live hunts are actually hunting coyote and some are hunting foxes. There are some that hunt other uh, other quarry like bobcat or sometimes bear, you know, it just depends on the country and the hounds and how they're trained. And how that works is that the hounds aren't actually chasing the animal, they're chasing the scent. So they, you know, they put their noses to the ground and their sterns, which is actually their tail, it's the hunting word for tail is their stern, um, goes up in the air. And that's when they are on the scent. And a lot of times, you know, the second or third field will actually see the the quarry come out of the woods before they see the hounds. So the, the fox will jump out and they'll see it, you know, going by. And then, you know, a few minutes later, the hounds come. So that's, that's live hunting. Uh, drag hunting is when somebody lays the scent down on the ground. And they do that either using a... Uh, four-wheeler with a spray bottle of a particular mixture. Um, sometimes they'll they'll spray a rag or they'll wet down a rag and they'll drag it through the woods and they'll kind of uh, fake the line like that a fox might take or you know or that a coyote might take and they and they drag that through and then when the hounds come along, they're actually smelling that laid down scent that was laid down by a human being, either on horseback or on a four-wheeler or sometimes on foot. So that's that's the difference between the two. I, and about 40% of the packs in the U.S. are drag these days. And that, that number is increasing a little bit just because of territory issues that that, you know, usable land is getting is getting smaller and with development. And sometimes they have to go to a drag. Well, and my understanding, Emily, with drag is that the huntsman doesn't know where the scent has been dragged and they tend to be faster than uh, a live quarry hunt. Yeah, Jennifer always liked doing the drag hunts better because there wasn't there was less standing around waiting yes, for the hounds to find a scent. You, you're just going. Yes, that is true. They're faster, and the huntsman does not know that what's happening. He's you know he's in he's the, whoever he sends out to do the laying of the line. They do the, whatever they want to do out there. So. Also, that's done top secretly from the huntsman, so he doesn't know. Well. Yeah, I think most most of the time they don't know. It just depends on the hunt, but oh, cool. yeah. Yeah. So, and then, you know, you always get to, I think people think there's carnage every time, you know, that always comes up too. Um, and I think in all the hunting my wife has done, they've, uh, it maybe has happened once <laughs> where they actually <laughs> caught an animal. Uh, other than that, there it hasn't happened a lot when she was out. Yeah, I mean, it's it doesn't happen a lot in this country. You know, it's really a hound sport. That's what I like to say. You know, it's kind of like it's kind of like agility training, or you know, you're really you're really watching the hounds work the scent. That's what you're working, and it's a fascinating thing to see that uh, in action. And as I've gotten more experience as a as a fox hunter and learn, and now I'm whipping in and I know Tara also whips in. You, you really, you really learn to read the hounds and what they're doing and their voices and, you know, how they're reacting to the scent. And, you know, it's very rare these days for any hunt to, to really what we call it in fox hunting account for the quarry, which is, you know, 
as you say, the carnage. They actually catch um, something. <laughs> yeah, they uh, they actually catch something. It happens, but you know, it's not it's not really the it's not really the thing that it's not really the goal. Actually, at some of the hunts, Jennifer thought the foxes were just messing with everybody because oh, oh yeah, <laughs> they made a game out oh, of it. <laughs> I definitely think they do that. <laughs> and then they laugh all, when you guys go away empty-handed. So, all right. So let's, uh, one more thing here on the listener questions, and then we, we can get into the rest of the show. And that was, you talked about whipping in. So talk about the hierarchy of a hunt and how all that works. And uh, people were asking about the red coats too, which are actually pink, but they were asking about the red coats too. So why don't you kind of explain the hierarchy? Who wants to take that one? I'll start it out. And then Emily, um, you, can, you can add what I inevitably am going to forget. Mm-hmm. So I've only been hunting for I, the first hunt season I hunted was around 2010. And so when you start out, you come out as a guest and in, and when you're riding in the field, it's, it's more or less, and some hunts are more stern about this than other hunts. The hunt that I started with and that I currently ride with is, is not very stern about it, but guests ride behind members, ride behind folks with buttons, ride behind members with colors, and then you have staff members. And to kind of, break that out a little bit more, most everyone, and I'm using finger quotes when I say this, because like I said, I'm in Texas and we have a lot of folks who come out and ride Western or whatnot, you know, come out in the black coat and the, the tan britches. And after you've been a member for a little while, the masters can choose to bestow upon you what are called your buttons. And that's when you can get buttons with the hunt's emblem, whatever it's chosen to be on the, on the buttons of your coat. And so that that puts you at a little bit more of a hierarchy than just a member. After you've hunted for usually some, you know, two, three, four years and, you know, you read different things and they say you have to ride with the first field or you have to jump jumps. Again, it varies from hunt to hunt, but you get what's awarded your colors. And that's when you can wear the hunt colors on your coat collar. And so it's, it's a visible way to separate who you are in the field and, and what your affiliation with the hunt is. And then that's kind of the, the be all end all of just a, being a member is your colors and your buttons. And then they're also what are called whipper ins. And that's what Emily and I do. And we help the huntsman, um, essentially with the hounds. So if for my hunt specifically, and this may be different from Emily's hunt. And I know for other hunts in different geographies, we're hunting on properties where it's important that our hounds don't a go into roads and b that they don't go on other people's property. So as a whipper in, we're responsible for kind of spreading out around the property and making sure the hounds don't cross the property border. And then lastly are the field masters or the masters of the hunt. And usually at all hunts, those folks are going to wear the red coats. Whipper ins in my hunt also wear red coats with the colors. And so the masters of the field they're leading either the field with the members and that there's first field, second field, hilltoppers and whatnot. Like Emily's talked about and like our guests are going to talk more about the specificities of the fields. But it's really important that you don't ride in front of the field masters. (laughs) I I, I think that's kind of a general rule wherever you go is you shouldn't ride in front of the field masters because they're responsible for making sure that we're not as members, you know, riding up on the hounds or getting in front of the hounds or making making the huntsman angry or impeding on the hunting or whatnot. And so that's the Cliff Notes version of, of the different fields. Um, Emily, what do you have to add? Well, I was going to say, you know, this is, it's kind of a classic situation because as I've said, you know, every, every hunt is going to be slightly different and, um, and how every hunt works is just a little bit different. In our hunt, you get your colors and then you get your buttons. And, um, interesting. Yeah. And that's, you know, the unique to our masters. Um, we are allowed to wear as staff, we're allowed to wear scarlet, but we, um, we haven't, I think there's one or two people that do, but, um, you know, as a whipper in our job, because we're hunting on vast public lands, we don't really come across any roads ever. Um, so our job as whipper ins, whippers in is to like watch for, watch for quarry, um, make sure the hounds aren't riding, which means, you know, running off on hair or on elk. We run into elk in our country sometimes, or the other day we, we, uh, we hunted right through a skunk smell and the hounds were just like 
wah, you know, they're just, their noses just went berserk. And so, you know, our job is to kind of keep them like contained and, and hunting on the right quarry. So, so whippers in and different hunts have different jobs. Um, but mostly we, we serve at the pleasure of the huntsman and, and so, you know, what he says is, or she says is, you know, that's the rule of law. So, and a lot of times, you know, at the beginning of a hunt, a huntsman will gather us together and say, well, I'm going to hunt north along this fence line, and then I'm going to turn towards the west, and, you know, we're going to head towards the pond, and he'll kind of give you the layout of the day. And, of course, that could co- totally change depending on where the scent is. So, you know, the whippers in are really responsible for keeping the hounds, you know, in, going in the right direction um, and not crossing roads and and also keeping an eye out for quarry. A lot of times in our hunt, you know, the whippers in are the ones that actually see the the quarry, you know, because we're way out, you know, on the far right or the far left or behind the hunt. So that's kind of the, the that's how the day unfolds. And uh, yeah, the field master don't ever pass the field master. That's the one one big rule you need to know if you're hunting. And it's for safety too. You know, their job is to keep you safe and to keep the hunt safe. Um, so that's that's the field master's role in the in the whole big picture. I know you get glared at for that because Jennifer's accidentally done it a time or two on green horses. So, uh. yeah. <laughs> I think if you're riding a green horse, you just have to tell your field master, I'm sorry, I'm yeah. riding a green horse. Is there a horse. ribbon for that in the tail? Uh, I'm going to be passing you here shortly. Uh. Yeah, green, yeah green horse, green ribbon. Oh, is it? <laughs> yep, really? your horse. Yeah. 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 Okay. That's good. And if you have a if you have a kicker, you put a gr- red ribbon in there. So. <laughs> That's funny. All right. So yeah. one last question, then we'll get to the, your first guest here. And the basic question was, how do people find hunts in their area? Well, there is a directory out there on the World Wide Web. Oh, that dates me, doesn't it? Um, on the internet, uh, at the Masters of Foxhounds Association, uh, you can go to mfha.com, and there's a map there. And uh, if you look at the map, it'll it'll show you with little dots where all the hunts are in the United States. And there's also a directory, a printed directory that we publish in an online version. Um, and you can look up your state. And you can look up the hunt and all the information you need to know about how to get in touch with the hunt, how many days, what seasons, what clothes they wear. All of that information is in the hunt roster. And um, that's also available on MFHA.com. So, And I will say from my experience, um, some hunts have active websites, some don't. Some have Facebook pages, some don't. You're always going to get the best information if you contact someone who's listed with MFHA. I know folks in my hunt who are masters are not very likely to update Facebook or update those other things. But if you call them, they will absolutely call you back and give you all the information you could ever want. Yep, that is true. We, it's the best is to just call and call and ask around the horse community in your town. You know, you'll probably meet somebody. There are hunts out there who are not registered with MFHA. Um, those are called farmers packs and, uh, and they're, you know, they follow the same rules. And so ask around your horse community and see who knows someone who hunts and see if you can get, get an intro to them. So Lilla Mason is joining us today. She is the huntsman and master of foxhounds for the Iroquois hunt in Lexington, Kentucky. And I've known Lilla for quite a number of years. And I know she's been super involved in all different aspects of fox hunting and today we wanted to talk to you a little bit, Lilla, about the Retired Racehorse Project and how that uh, Field Hunter Championship went. Because I heard that you had like 50 or 60 competitors, which is just a huge number. So um, considering it started out with, I think, 12 the first year, but um, you've been there since it moved to the Kentucky Horse Park. So, uh, so talk to us about how that went. It was it was something else. This year, by far, was over the bar the best year. Um, Maggie Wright designed a course that was uh, challenging enough to where they could really see the physical effort horses made, but also easy enough that everybody seemed to negotiate it safely. And the enthusiasm with the the riders was just incredible for fox hunting. And they ended up splitting it into three groups, and um, the quality of horses was really amazing. So Maggie Wright, is she a fox hunter or, uh, yes, she's a fox hunter. And she, she also, uh, 
uh, runs a lot of e- of events, you know, like um, combined tests and stuff locally. So she's, you know, uh, very good at putting on huge events and designing courses and that sort of thing. And she also is an instructor and has a, you know, a huge business producing riders who end up in the fox hunting field as well as, you know, training event riders that go to national um, competitions. Lilla, this is Tara. I ride with Brazos Valley Hounds in Texas. And uh-huh. they live streamed the very, I saw the very ending of the Field Hunters at RRP. Can you tell us a little bit more about what was the format for the beginning that we couldn't watch on the live stream? Our, our hunt members went over the top on this wonderful stirrup cup. So all the, all the riders and horses gathered and had a stirrup cup, just like at a, at a formal hunt with hand biscuits and port and orange juice or whatever. And then, um, each, they split the, uh, the riders into groups of, you know, under 20, 15 or so. And they, they had a flat class and they had to walk, trot and canter, reverse, walk, trot and canter. And I think they had a halt and maybe a, a, a reverse a backing up. And then after the flat classes were done, this particular morning was extremely foggy. So we had to delay a little bit because I don't think anybody would have been able to see the jumps <laughs> until they were right on top of them. So after the flat classes were completed, then each of the groups followed me and the hounds and my whip, Alina, and the field master were behind the field master or over a course of fences. And um, the course was really great. I thought Maggie was so brilliant the way she did it because it started out with some smaller fences and it was sort of like going uphill, which is nice because, you know, for a young horse going uphill, they're not going to get barreling along as much. And then, and then it sort of turned and started going downhill near the end of the course so that um, I think that gave riders a chance to get sort of a steady balance in the beginning. And then it was more challenging at the end. And they, they asked me to, uh, lead them over four jumps and then stop at a check and uh, reverse order. So I went to the back of the line. So the whatever horse was in back was now the first horse and whatever the, was the first horse was now the, the last horse and then proceeded over a few more jumps. And then they asked me to make a big um, S turn and uh, go through water and another check and, and, uh, and then complete the course. So it sounds like it was pretty similar to what actually might happen out in the hut field um, with, you know, with the field reversing direction and, and having to hold hard and doing a bunch of different activities that would happen actually when you were out hunting. Yes, it was. It was a, it was a great simulation. I mean, it couldn't have been more like hunting, except the hounds didn't jump. They just kept going around the jumps. <laughs> they didn't have to. <laughs> they could skirt by. They didn't have to yeah, jump. Yeah, they thought that through. was pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> so, how many hounds did you have out? I took about six couple of hounds. Mm-hmm. So, tell us what couple means, since we're listening, since we're well, talking. Well, you count your... hounds in twos, so six couple of hounds would have been twelve hounds. Yeah. So, why is that? Why do you count them in twos? It makes it easier to count. So, if you see a, a, a you know, twenty-four dogs together it's easier to to count them in twos so you would say then you have 12 couple or six couple i think it makes it easier than saying one two three four five six seven it's just sort of like you can look at the whole group and count by twos and i think you can remember the number quicker or assess the number quicker yeah so tell us how you're um how you're getting uh switching gears here for a minute tell us how you're getting ready for hunt season um and are you autumn hunting now or have you started yet and yeah um, yeah yes we, we've just started um we were a little bit later starting we have to wait till they harvest all the tobacco here and it's been a very very wet summer so they had trouble uh getting all the tobacco in so we've just now started mm-hmm. and how do you get your horses ready for hunt season well, we, we start uh, six weeks before hunt season. We start walking. We walk for two weeks, and then uh, we start jogging. And each each week, we increase the time that we're jogging so that by the time hunt season starts, the horses are able to jog uh, four to six miles or, you know, an hour, about an hour with without being, you know, overly taxed or overly out of breath. So kind of hearkening back to the RRP a little bit, um, most folks who hunt, usually not most, but a lot of people who hunt ride off the track thoroughbreds. And the 
a lot of the point of the retired racehorse program is introducing a horse to hunting. So do you frequently or periodically get off the track thoroughbreds to use for hunting? Yes, I've trained many, many, and it's just the greatest joy in the world. And, you know, the thing thing about hunting is that, you know, horses are herd animals anyway. And this is the one sport they get to do, which is so natural to them because they get to go in a herd of horses, of other horses, and do what they're doing. And it's, it's you know, it's it's a great sport for a horse because they'll follow each other over anything because it gives them great confidence. You know, that's why in 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 England and Ireland, they, they hunt a lot of show jumpers and event horses because hunting gives the horse a lot of confidence because he can follow all the other horses through water and over jumps and and it's, um, you know, their natural instinct is to do things in a group. So when you're looking at off-the-track thoroughbreds or just really any horse in general, what are you looking for? A good mind. A good-minded horse, really. <clears throat> because you can train a horse to do just about anything, uh, but you can't change their mental capacity, really. So, you know, you want something that is, is very sensible, Um it, for a fox hunter, I think the most important thing is a horse that has a great sense of self-preservation, which most of them do. Um, because, you know, f- fox hunters are really, I think, some of the premier equine athletes because they're the only ones who, to do their sport, have to gallop over natural ground at speed and jumping. You know, at inventing, somebody's groomed the course. There's, they've checked for holes. Everything's, you know, the... The stadium jumping is all, you know, the sand is the footing's just right. Same with show jumping, same with dressage. But fox hunting, no, they just, you know, if there's a rock or hole or whatever, they have to negotiate it. So they're they're really tremendous athletes. And that's what's so great about the thoroughbred is they're very quick and athletic and um, can rebalance themselves quickly to negotiate, you know, rough terrain or a hill or a sudden, you know, log they had to jump over or something like that. That is so true. You know, it's so, you know, I did a clinic a couple of weeks ago with a trainer um, here and she said, you know, your, your responsibility on the horse is, is position and direction and they do the rest, you know, stay out of the way, let them figure it out. So that is so true. You know, Lil, I know you've done, um, you do a lot of dressage with your hunt horses. Um, tell us a little bit about, about that and, and why that might be good for a hunt horse. Well, dressage is good because, as as I said, horse uh, fox hunting horses have to negotiate natural ground, so they have to go up and down hills and make turns and and all these things. So they use a lot of different muscles in their body other than just going forward or back or over a jump. And so, what dressage helps with is is uh, developing those other kind of mu- like core muscles and and other things that will help them balance. For instance. Um, leg yielding is dressage and that's just making your horse go sideways. Uh, turn on the forehand is making, uh, the back legs go around the front legs or conversely, uh, the front legs going around the back legs, but all those things that make the horse move his body sideways or something like that help build muscle and balance and dressage. The nice thing about it too, is you can give a horse a really good workout in 20 minutes doing dressage. You know, not everybody has two hours a day to go jog their horse and jog and jog and jog or walk in, up and down hills. But you can, if you go to a dressage instructor and they can show you how to, to do a few of these things like um, leg yielding, turns on the forehand, turns on the haunches. Um, <clears throat> another good exercise is to uh, a lot of transitions, like maybe trot for uh, 10 strides and then walk for three strides and then trot for 10 strides and walk for three strides. And that, that even helps a horse start gathering his hind end underneath him and makes it easier for him if he's going down a hill and has to jump a jump to spring off. And so it's, it's kind of, I liken it to uh, giving, giving you tools for your riding toolbox. And the more tools you have in your riding toolbox, uh, the more fun your horse is to ride and the more you can um, train him to be obedient and pay attention to what you're asking him to do. Mm-hmm. And also, like when you're in when you're in a tight space, you know, if you're out in a tight trail and that you have to reverse field, it's great to have those lateral moves. You know, you can just do a little turn on the haunches and you're facing the other way. So um, yeah, or you know, if you have that, to get a gate, you know, have get a gate, or maybe maybe you have you had to get off and you've got to sidle up to a log and get back on. You know, all those things 
Um, yeah. The more versatile your horse is to the, your leg aids, uh, the better. And it's and it and it makes your riding more fun. That way, if you just have a twenty minutes to ride, you can you know a ring. You can make up little games like I'm going to go sideways five steps, and then the other way five steps, and <laughs> you know it makes it more fun to ride. Yep. And my hunt horse knows how to open every gate on my property now. It's a little bit annoying, but oh well. <laughs> well, and in Fox, I mean, that is the most important thing is is being able to get gates because you may be on a boundary fence where two landowners, you know, uh, share the same fence. But if somebody doesn't quite close the gate and somebody's cattle gets in with somebody else's cattle, well, that's a big deal. Yeah. And uh, so that's really important. Yep, it's very important to to respect the land you're hunting over. That's a that's a big part of the fox hunting um, culture is respecting the land and landowners and and what they're growing and whether it's cattle or tobacco. You know, we hunt in in New Mexico. We hunt on on public land, but we have cattlemen who are you know they're grazing out there. Um, and every year we try to help them gather cattle and we fix their fences for them and do all kinds of other chores and keeps us keeps us in their good graces and lets lets us keep uh keep hunting that beautiful land so yeah it, it, most fox yeah i think it's important for a hunt club to be part of the part of the um farming community yeah yeah how how would we find more information about the your hunt your koi hunt or getting involved in hunting well, you can go to the, the our IroquoiHunt.com website, or you could go to the Master Foxhounds Association uh, website and find out a lot more about fox hunting. And now it's time for Horn Call of the Month, where we'll be playing different horn calls and explaining what they mean. And so this week, we're going to be listening to Moving Off. So moving off is played at the very beginning of the hunt when hounds are when the huntsman is casting the hounds out towards the hunt. And so the very first thing that he does is he sends them out towards the cover of the scent. And that's when you play moving on. Well, our next guest is Robert Taylor. He's the huntsman and master of foxhounds for the Goshen Hounds in Maryland. And we're going to talk to Robert. He's, he comes from a long line of fox hunters and fox hunting family. And uh, we're going to talk to him a bit about autumn hunting and other, other topics. So, Robert, tell us what you're up to these days with the hounds. It's October. And so are, have you started hunting? Um, are, you, are you getting ready? And, and how's that going for you? Yes, Emily, we have started hunting. We uh, started on the first Saturday with our autumn hunting for Saturday in September. And now we're looking forward to it in the first Sunday in November, our opening meet, which is at our beautiful Tusculum farm owned by Michelle Freeman. And we'll meet there at noon. At, uh, hunting has been splendid for us. It's been mixed, you know, for most because of the rain. And then we were, you know, we, we had to give it away, what, two, three days in a row. But now we're back on full flurry. And our Wednesday and Sunday hunting has been absolutely splendid. We don't spend a long time out there at this time of the year. We spend up to, well, on Wednesday, we spent three hours. And that's as long as we, uh, we stay out. With good runs, good fast runs, both times we, we curtail it. So, Robert, this is Tara. I, I ride with Brazos Valley Hounds in Texas. Tell us a little bit oh, about... Oh, yes, we met, yes. Excellent. Um, a lot of our listeners don't really know what autumn hunting is, so can you kind of just explain what is autumn hunting and why is there autumn hunting before formal season and, and what, what kind of is the purpose of it? Yes, absolutely. Um, it, it means many things to many people and, and, and in different ways, but uh, to me... It's all about the young hounds. To me, it's all about the young foxes and getting them up and about, getting them to know the business of, of chasing. Uh, so when I uh, go out with my young hounds, uh, of course, we have walked them. They, they're used to uh, going along with the horses. They're used to going along on foot. And they're used to, by that stage of taking them out, they're used to the basic horn-blowing uh, calls. So when I go out, uh, in our territory in Maryland, 
I put them in the cornfields, primarily cornfields and the bean fields. Uh, the small critters obviously live in the corn, so that's where the, the fox will harvest his meals from, and that's that's where we go. Uh, first, first two to three hunts out, uh, I take the I have them out there for perhaps an hour to an hour and a, hour and a half. The idea is that the hounds get used to going in to the cover, in this case the cornfields, and then coming back out to the the, the cheer of my voice or the the cheer of my my horn. Um, having done that, and I'm satisfied. I, I'm I'm you know usually it's pretty hot at that time of the year with us, and I allow them to rest, take them to a pond, have a little swim, and if the morning has been slow, I will put them back in again. These days begin at 7 a.m., and as we get now into into uh, October, these days get longer, and, and the, the weather gets cooler as it has been of late. We go out at nine or ten o'clock and spend three three hours leading up to what is typically maybe four hours during our open season. But the autumn chase and the autumn hunting is all about the young the young hound um, and the and the young fox. And of course, it allows the opportunity for people to bring their young horses out or horses getting legged up again for the up and coming full season. Will you take some older hounds to kind of guide the younger hounds? Or are they just Absolutely. the young hounds listening to you? Absolutely. Yeah, it, it is a mix. Obviously, I take the older hounds that are, uh, in inverted commas, reliable, totally reliable. They will, will stick to the, the correct quarry. And these days, I tend to take as many of my puppies out. We might have up to about 10 puppies. We're a fairly small pack. <clears throat> so I, I would take as many of them as possible uh, out with me, and 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 they are guided largely by the uh, the older hounds. The art of the huntsman is to have the young hounds leave him, having spent all that time during the summer walking, etc., um, <clears throat> and staying with him. And here, the art of the huntsman is to have those puppies and his older hounds, obviously, to leave him. Uh, and, uh, and go and seek their their, their quarry. Um, you know, everybody's got their own little ways of of doing that. And I teach them when I take them for a swim in the in the local pond. The, the language, the body language, the voice language, and the language with the with the horse. As we get closer to the chasing season, is one where if if I encourage them to rush at the pond for a drink or a swim, I'll use the same language. Uh, approaching a cornfield or a bean field or indeed a piece of woods and that works for me everybody has their own way of doing things but that works very successfully to me the typically i would take out uh 13 and a half to 15 and a half couple i i use an odd odd, odd number that was you know there's it's not, nothing particular about that it's just a, a traditional thing and and the old thought that we do we take a half couple out as my father and grandfather and great grandfather used used to do, um, um, and at this time of the year, out of the twenty five couple of hounds that I have currently in the kennels, I will hunt between sixteen and a half and eighteen and a half couple of hounds. And those who do not go out are those that maybe have been a little bit foot sore from the time before. Uh, a bit or two might be in heat, or somebody just needs a rest. So when you say puppies, how old are you talking about? How old are the how old are the puppies? Our, our puppies, uh, right, right. Our our puppies are bred generally in February, March, and April. I don't go much into any, any further than than that. I like them to be as old as possible when I take them out. So they will hunt the following September. So the more they're born in February, March, and April during that summer, they will be with other members of the hunt. Uh, growing up a little bit, and they will t- return around about this time of the year to um, the kennels, and it'll be a year from then, a year from sep- the September. <clears throat> so that makes them about 16 months old. So when you say you you let the members of the hunt take the puppies, what what do they do with them? What what's that protocol like? Do they train them? You know, how do they how do they work with them? By and large, that is the the, the puppies getting. Have a little bit of fun before they come back to the discipline of the kennels, I suppose. 
and they are with farming members of generally with farming members of the of the hunt <clears throat> who have got the room for them to run around and not not be leased or penned up all, all, all of the time. During that time, they get used to their name, particularly the name that they'll be they'll have for the rest of their lives, and that name is given them to given to them by by me um, or members of the hunt. Uh, by that I mean uh, we we would have a party and we have a naming a puppy naming party and and and, and there's a little fundraiser for the hunt. Uh, we would have a selected list of of names and they would bid for the names of individuals or groups of people would bid for the names and those funds would go towards the club and that name would stick with the, the puppy for uh, the rest of its days. Um, usually we do not choose a human name. We choose an, a, a, an, an abstract name like Achilles or Hector or whatever for, for the name of the, um, of the pup. Uh, and when they do stay with the farmers, the, the puppies are lent, they learn them to lead. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that when we, they do come back to the, the kennels, when I take the, the puppies out with the older hounds, then they would be coupled to an older hound and learn the discipline of staying as a, as a pack. And one hopes that the breeding that we have had, that they have that pack, packing mentality and uh, will stay with the rest of the hounds. They, depending on the individual, they will be coupled to that older hound maybe four or five times walking. That means they walk every day for about half an hour to one hour, depending on my, my the, the availability of my staff. And we take everybody out and that we walk across the fields and down the lanes or whatever's available uh, around the kennels that doesn't have too many crops. And it teaches them to stay with the older hounds, not to go into the woods unless I ask, not to go into the corn or beans unless, unless I ask in the future. So it's important that they have that little bit of excitement and they grew up happy. But when they come back to me, they know, how, they know their name and they know how to uh, be led on a, on a lead. So um, we talked a lot about hounds and puppies, and that's all like really excellent information because I think every hunt does things just a little bit differently. So, you know, you can go to Goshen and you you raise your puppies a certain way and you can come to Casa Drone and we raise our puppies a certain way. Um, your staff is mostly volunteers. Is that correct? I am the only professional. Everybody, everybody's volunteer. In fact, I earn part of my living by through my horse business, my farm. Uh, mm-hmm. My my staff are all working people, and and they gladly share their time with me. So it, it is a different person who comes each day to walk the hounds, and then I I generally have instead of having <clears throat> three or four whippers. I might have seven, seven staff members uh, because uh, on a Wednesday there might only be three available, or a Saturday three out of that seven available. And of course, as the the season goes on and the winter deepens, some of these people come from from some distance and might not be able to get there, or for whatever reason, their horse or whatever uh, is not available to them. So yes, we are. We're indeed all, all, all voluntary, which helps keep the expenses down. Yeah, I think how, almost... Um, go ahead, Tara. How many days a week do you hunt? And is it the same during the autumn as it is during formal season? During the, the autumn, uh, we hunt three days a week, sometimes four. But we, uh, what we do, we, do, we would hunt a Monday, a Wednesday, and a Saturday. The Monday is an evening meeting, and, and we would uh, meet at 5, 5 p.m., on a Monday evening for each Monday evening, except the last Monday in the, in September when it's getting a bit dark around about five o'clock. So we generally get three, at least three meets in on a Monday. And then depending on the weather, we would meet Wednesday at 7 a.m. and Saturday at 7 a.m. That changes at this time of the year because uh, of the gun season and other functions going on. We take our hunts to 
the, the Maryland Million Race Meeting is coming Saturday, and we take the Hearts of the Washington International to parade them. We take them to various parades so that we can show people what foxhounds are like, whether we're mounted or, or on foot. So our days vary um, at the weekend from Saturday to Sunday uh, up until our, our, our opening meet. Thereafter, uh, we, we hunt only on a Sunday because of the, the, the gun hunting. And this season will be gun hunting every Sunday, but they cease uh, uh, the gunfire at 10.30 a.m. each Sunday. Uh, so we will meet at 11 and head out at 11, 11 o'clock. From then on, unless the weather um, curtails us, we would hunt Wednesdays and Sundays at 11. So one thing that a lot of our listeners ask about fox hunting is attire. So I know that autumn hunting attire is somewhat different than formal hunting. So can you tell us a little bit about what your hunt expects during autumn hunting versus formal season for attire for your attendees? Absolutely. Uh, yes, your comment is very correct. It, it does it does vary uh, tremendously and some are very uh, strict um, and others are very, are very casual. We're somewhere in the middle uh, at Goshen. Uh, up until uh, October, during the month of September, it's quite warm. So the attire is boots, breeches, and a polo shirt. Uh, the polo shirt may not be uh, a scarlet uh, shirt simply because I have my staff wear scarlet shirts so that I, uh, and, and particularly the farmers, can easily identify, identify a lone rider uh, going uh, along the edges of the fields, etc., and not not take umbrage at some rider out there, uh, but close to their crops. As the gun season approaches, the, the idea of the scarlet is obviously very important in in uh, in, in the woods and around the woods, so that the uh, the hunters can see um, or people on the horses. The the people who <clears throat> who lead the field, the masters. We have three three fields. Each master will wear and scarlet, and that would be a scarlet a scarlet polo. I myself wear scarlet, but being a bit of a traditionalist, I will wear white shirt, red tie, and and either by a jacket or or, or a wind cheater, which is also scarlet, with my white breeches and boots. Uh, as we as we approach October into October, uh, we become a little bit more formal, and we ask people to to wear the rat catcher, which is uh, the, the jacket with the collar and tie, uh, breeches, boots, and if it's warm, the master, the, uh, the the first field master generally would be in control of excusing jackets uh, if if so wished on on days like that. Um, and by the certainly by the middle of October, it's cool, it's cool enough that everybody has got their tweed on and their breeches and boots, etc., and it's, it becomes a lot more formal. If someone is in difficulty. And, and obviously, difficulty financially or whatever, we make sure they're they're covered in that in that respect. We also have a couple of people who who do come out and ride in Western saddles, which is rather unusual, uh, but they are significant um, members of, of our hunt and, and and contribute a lot to the hunt, both financially and otherwise. And have people who come from uh, you know Arizona and the Midwest and uh, who only ride Western. And they have horses that are basically ridden western here, and we allow them to uh, come out uh, in in the in the western saddle. But that only applies to a couple of people. Now, when we come to our open season, which is the beginning of November, then we we return to the formal. Uh, we have uh, the black the black coats. Uh, we have the breeches and boots, the traditional boots. All, all staff members now in our hunt are invited to wear scarlet for the simple reason uh, that um, I explained earlier about being v- very visible. The masters of each of the fields uh, are invited to wear, particularly the first and second fields, are invited to wear scarlet also. And at that stage, the, the male members who have colors would wear scarlet, as would the male, uh, as the female masters would wear scarlet if they, if they uh, so wished. The female uh, members with colors are, are black with the, uh, the colored uh, color, um, and that, that's the normal normal thing for us. Yes. 
So Robert, tell us um, a little bit about your horses and the horses that, how you bring them along. I know you're a longtime horseman and, um, and train have trained lots and lots of horses for different disciplines. Um, so tell us how you bring a, a hunt horse into the field. Well, it's very important to us that uh, safety, you know, absolutely, absolutely comes uh, comes first and last. Um, if a, if a horse does not accept the the uh, the group mentality uh, for a field hunter, then he, we have options. You know, you either sell them on for a different discipline, and we do have, you know, a lot of lots of us do compete in different disciplines. So the horse is not locked in. And something that they do not want uh, to do. <clears throat> um, I, I I still like the thoroughbred. Uh, I've always been, uh, you know, or, or certainly a, a something that's got a lot of thoroughbred in it, uh, mainly because of a fleet of foot. Now, most of the thoroughbreds that we have, or all the thoroughbreds we have, have to, have to like being uh, independent as a as a staff horse. All the horses uh, that are staff horses have to be somewhat independent and you know quite often people say well you know you've got a wonderful staff horse there no matter what sort it is you know we'd like to buy him as a as a field hunter well that's not every horse's bag uh, or a cup of tea when they've used to be in, in the front all all of the time uh, and they do not want to return to uh, that that group mentality but when i'm bringing on horses for other people or looking at horses for other people but you've got to look at the person, how good a rider they are. You've got to look at their body shape, and you take a body shape of a horse, uh, and you look at the number of times that person is able to ride. And if they only are a weekend warrior, you know, do they need assistance to be in a place, uh, namely a barn that will have the horse exercised or legged up for them uh, during the week? As we bring them forward to the the hunting scene, it's not necessarily. Uh, for a horse to be hugely fit, but a horse to be um, mentally and physically in, a, in, a, in the right in the right place, and to do that, we have experienced riders who will ride the horses daily, and they would ride the horses cross country or hacking around the field in, in, in pairs or, or or larger groups if we're able to. And those experienced riders then would exercise the horses with with the foxhounds. Um, when we're kicking the young hounds out uh, with the older ones through the byways and, and, and highways and up, up through the fields, etc. So that when the, the owner gets on the horse, if that person is not an experienced horse person, then the horse already has an idea of what to do. It's not a good thing to have an inexperienced horse with an inexperienced rider. It becomes quite frightening and very very unsafe for them, and that's not a good scenario for for anybody. But these days, in general, I encourage people to have a crossbred of some sort. And and, and when I say some sort, if if the country is one with lots of ditches and hedges, it's got to be the athlete out there. If it is a fairly flat country and there's not lots of fences, then perhaps the horse doesn't need to be as fleet of foot. But the farther west you go with the white, uh, the wily coyote, etc., uh, you need a fleet of foot horse, even though there might not be jumps. So you know it's horses for courses depends on the place uh, that you're that you're hunting. Um, very important confirmation wise in selecting a horse is that they have a decent foot. No foot, no horse. We used to say in the old country, and if they cannot maintain, if a farrier cannot maintain. Uh, good soundness, and uh, they cannot maintain the wearing of shoes becomes really becomes a, a very a difficult situation for somebody who's paying a fair amount of money uh, to keep their horse going uh, in often wet conditions. So many many things you know are take um, are taken into consideration. Those are a few. So Robert, if you met a horseman, horse person, the majority of our listeners are avid riders of all different kinds. What would you say is the best way for a rider to get started with fox hunting? Uh, you know, what we do is this. We just find them a partner of some sort, somebody they can use as a, a mentor. Lots of people will say, oh, you got to go and take lessons with Robert Taylor. And that's not the case. You don't need a Robert Taylor. 
you need a situation that you can use somebody else as a mentor. Go ride with somebody. I, I always ride with someone, even exercising the horses out there. I ride, and you know, 80%, 85% of the time, even today, I will ride with someone. Number one is a safety factor. Number two is an education factor for I'm able to ride with, and I do this daily. I ride with one of, one of my clients, um, and I'm able to point out on the go uh, what, what is good, what is not good. Uh, is that a bit? Uh, is that the correct fitting for the saddle? Is this the correct beating of of the horse? How comfortable are you? Is that the wrong size of boot? Is that the wrong uh, type of uh, breech or or trouser that that you're wearing? So that when they get out there, they're able to, you know, handle stuff when they get to, you know when they come to something like a little creek, a soft spot, or or a little log, are both the, the rider and the horse comfortable about what they are what they are meeting and if they're not is there is is there enough tools in their their war chest to get a a, a good and safe exit strategy and as i've always said to my people look you, you've got to enjoy this if you're not enjoying it the horse is not enjoying it and vice versa and all i can do is give you the skills or try to teach you the skills and then you hopefully you have the ability to pull out of that that pandora box the correct thing that's uh, is needed at that time because there's no 100% version for each and every fence that you come to. There'd be the ideal spot, but when you're with a group of horses, the ideal spot is not reached very often. Great. That is excellent advice, Robert. Really, really good stuff to for our listeners to take home with them. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with us, Robert. It's been hugely educational um, for for me and Tara and for our listeners. And um, we look forward to seeing you uh, soon. Yeah, thank you very much, Glenn. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Tara. And like, I hope to see some of you out in the hunting field. Don't be scared to give me a ring and come enjoy Goshen. Well, you guys, that was a terrific show, and I think we've helped a lot of people who are new to fox hunting or, or who really want to take a look at it. I wanted to remind everybody that we're going to be doing this. Actually, I won't be doing it. You, the both of you will be doing Horses in the Morning on the third Thursday of every month, and we're excited that you're going to be here talking to different people from around the country and uh, learning more about fox hunting. You can find Coverside Magazine at www.issuu.com slash ecoverside.net. And Coverside is spelled C-O-V-E-R-T-S-I-D-E dot net. So you don't pronounce the T. We had an argument about that before you came on last week. We have 10 minutes on this topic. It's Coverside without the, you don't pronounce the T. The T is silent. Got it. I was right, Jamie. You were wrong. Okay. Tara, where can they find you? You can find me on Facebook. Just look me up at Tara Tibbetts, or you can follow my blog at bigskybootcity.com. You can find links to today's guests in the show notes at horsesinthemorning.com. You can follow Horses in the Morning on Facebook or just search for Horses in the Morning. You can have all of the Horse Radio Network shows with you wherever you go with our free app for iPhone and Android. Go to your app store and search Horse Radio Network. If you miss the live show, you can still listen to the recorded version on our website, our affiliate websites, or any podcast player. You'll never need to miss an episode. Special thanks to our sponsors, the Masters of Foxhound Association. And we're going to close it out with a traditional hunting salutation or goodbye, which is good night. Good night. Good night.